historically there's no correlation between property demand and interest rates in Indonesia. Usually you would see definitely a correlation. Yeah. Something else to mention is that interest rates three, four years ago in Indonesia were much higher than they are today. Mm. So that's something else that the customers see. So even the fixed interest rates were double digits a few years back. Then they have gone significantly down mm -hmm. uh, nowadays. So fixed interest for two, three years, you can get down to 3%, right. 3, 4%. Obviously for a limited amount of time, right. then it goes back to the floating rate right. of about 12%. People who grew up in Indonesia lived here for a long time. For them, they compared it to what it was five years ago. They said, well, this is great. So that's another psychological factor that doesn't slow the demand. And that's what we observe. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Meet Rinkas, your go-to digital mortgage platform breaking down financial barriers, for home seekers across Indonesia and Southeast Asia. They operate in more than 15 cities in partnership with all major Indonesian banks and premier property developers. Rinkas is on a mission to democratize homeownership and create over 100 million new homeowners. Don't just dream about owning a home, make it a reality. Explore more at www.rinkas.co.id. Hey, Ilya. Good to see you again. Hello, hello. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show because we had such a wonderful first-time interview, which can be found a year ago. But since then, you've started out building Ringcast, which is really exciting in combining both property tech and fintech. So really excited to have you on the show. Could you please introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. So uh, yeah, my name is Ilya. Originally, we were born in Moscow, but I grew up in Italy and uh, currently living in Indonesia for the past more than 10 years. So a little bit about about my career, started in management consulting in the TMT space in emerging markets, and then about 10 years ago, moved towards entrepreneurship. So I've been a serial founder, mainly in the fintech space, currently on my third startup. Previous startups were in mobile loyalty space and payments, and now I'm in mortgage brokerage, basically. So yeah, that's a little bit about me. Wow. And Obviously, we've dove into your past history in much more detail, including your last startup in the previous podcast episode. But this time, I think we wanted to talk a little bit more because you've had this interesting learning where you decided to wrap things up at the last company and start moving into property tech and fintech in Indonesia. So before we talk about Rinkas, could you talk about what happened over the past one and a half to two years, which is decided to wrap things up and then transition to this new company. So how did you make that decision? Well, it was a very tough decision. Obviously, when you build a company, it's your baby. So it takes a lot of thoughts of try to move on to the next chapter. In my particular case, my previous startup was in payments in the entertainment and hospitality space. It was a, a rough two years of COVID for us, but we managed to get through it. The company got break even, and I thought that the direction of the company was 
was taking was not necessarily where I could add a lot of value. It was going towards more of a SaaS global business. And I think when you realize that there are people that actually can do more than you or contribute more to the cause, then that's what triggers me basically to to move on and start something new. So being relevant is what founders love to, <laughs> to feel. So yeah, for about a year and a half, I decided to resign from my previous startup. And then I took a while to think a bit what to start next. And then Rinkas came along and then the rest is history. Let's zoom in there because I think there's a lot of founders whose companies they either wrap up because co-founder departure or they find a successor or they wind the company down. So lots of folks in that space now. So when you wound things down, you decide to make the decision first. So how did you take a break? Did you go on holiday? How did you take the opportunity? Well, I think there was two, a few things, right? So in the previous company, there was a new CEO who stepped in and then uh, there was in the process of uh, selling our Indonesian operations, which we ended up selling yeah. a few months later. And personally, I had also a change in my personal life. I had mm. my first baby. A baby girl was getting born. So I think you never know what to expect. I spent a few months to really just to get my head around it, what's like being a dad. So yeah. that was uh, a few months while we're still doing mainly a lot of research. Because when you do start a company or your third company, uh, before jumping into anything, you really have to do a proper research and you look at things a little bit different. So you try to control your enthusiasm of starting something new <laughs> because it's going to be a long and a challenging journey. And uh, you try to do research and understand, find the right partners to kick off the business. And that was the transition moment from my uh, second business to third business, where uh, I was enjoying time with my daughter, but on the other hand, actually working on really doing the deep research and going into details of what are the problems that I, I can help solving in Indonesia. Yeah. Control your enthusiasm. It's a bit like breaking up and then, you know, you want to date everybody. Right? Very similar. Yeah. Indeed, so how do you do similar. that? So you're exploring all these different ideas. I'm sure you look at property, you look at fintech. You must have looked at everything. Indonesia. So what was that search process like? Yeah, uh, It was also a, 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 an interesting time, right? So we started looking at this new business in 2021. And 2021 obviously was a very bullish year. Crypto was doing very well. Mm. ESG was doing very well. And fintech obviously was doing very well. So I think we went through this time quite a rational process of me and my co-founder on trying to understand what areas do we really and yeah. where the areas that we can also contribute. And we are not to be honest with you, three different areas. We looked into crypto and we liked it, but we're not experts into it. So we, we passed on that. We looked in the ESG where we thought that we both wanted in our next startup to contribute and have an impact. But then the models we looked at, we thought it was very difficult to monetize. And then we landed on home ownership, which we felt that it was a mixture between creating impact for the place where we live, which is Indonesia. But on the other hand, also leveraging our previous skills. So I built a payments company and my partner before built a digital bank in Indonesia. Mm. So that's how it came across. So a little bit through a rational process of taking out what you don't want to do <laughs> or you <laughs> cannot do and yeah. focusing on where you can contribute and where the passion lies. Yeah. And you know, you met your co-founder as well. How did you decide? Because so many co-founders, myself included, after we wrap our companies, there's a whole pool <laughs> of people you can match up with, right? Old friends, old acquaintances, people you meet. Uh, yeah. So I think this is a very good question. And I think it's a very difficult process because there's a lot of people that think you might compliment you, a lot of people that are friends. So how do you go about that? And I think for me, it was important to find somebody who is in a similar stage of life that I am and thinks about concepts similarly to me. So, uh, you know, you can find brilliant people that are younger, but I have different motivation to do things or in different stages uh, or the opposite. So for me, my co-founder is similar age than me. He is also married to an Indonesian, same as I am. Mm. So we're here for the long run and right. we do truly also 
want to make an impact to the country. So there was a lot of things that were kind of similarities. And I think that was important. So it's the stage you are. Right? Right. So I think that kind of was one of the key elements that I've considered. Yeah. And how did you land on this specific problem? Because, you know, so you have this person that you enjoy working with, you're brainstorming with, and then you're saying like, okay, I want to do something in fintech and property. So how did you zoom in on the problem that you're currently tackling? So I think we realized that obviously our expertise was mainly around fintech, mm -hmm. but we wanted that impact angle. And we went quite rationally through the whole process, analyzing different fintech opportunities. InsureTech was already taken. There was uh, uh, many people doing it. E-wallets obviously was already quite big in Indonesia. And we went like a lot, we looked at a lot of areas and then we we landed on home ownership and mortgages. And the first thing we realized that there was not much going on mm -hmm. from a startup tech perspective in Indonesia, you know, places like US or Australia, where my co-founder is from, it was really a, a big area where a lot of big companies have been created. I think that was one of the things that struck our attention. The second one was more really when we started deep diving into the Indonesian market of mortgages, the numbers spoke for themselves. So I thought that was like the final trigger or oh, there is definitely a big problem that we can help. Yeah. And so Rinkas, that's where you're at now. Could you share a little bit more about what exactly you're solving for? So just to give you a bit of facts about the Indonesian market, and so we are all on the same page. I think that's also very important for me to let others know what is happening. So in Indonesia, mortgage to GDP ratio at the moment is below 3%. So if we compare that, what does that mean? And if we compare that to other markets, so for example, India is 11%, and India has a lower GDP per capita than Indonesia. US, the penetration is about 50%, you know, places like Malaysia, double digits, 20, around 22%. So in Indonesia, mortgage penetration is comparative to other markets. And at the same time, the second key indicator that uh, we looked at and is still there is the housing, so-called housing backlog. So at the moment in Indonesia, we are talking about 13 million of houses that are in backlog. Right. So what does that mean? That means that mainly there are 30 million households or families that currently don't own a, a house in Indonesia that mm -hmm. either live with their parents or live in poor conditions. And that is a big topic for Indonesian government, but also on an international level, the United Nations level and so on and so forth. So those are the key indicators that we kind of found that we wanted to contribute. So and, and that's where we started. And what's interesting is that you made a decision to help with this finance side. So why is financing so hard in Indonesia? That's a very good question. So I think traditionally what people, when we started, everybody was saying that, oh, well, the banks are too traditional in Indonesia, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, it's not true. I mean, the banks really want to give more mortgages and lend more, and they are not as traditional as we think. So I think that's one of the first misconceptions about the financial sector in Indonesia. But what naturally happens is that a lot of, I would say, origination of mortgages in Indonesia is still done in a more traditional way. So when when I say traditional way, it's mainly paper-based applications involving a whole chain of resources. So starting from sales, direct salespeople to relationship managers, credit analysts, and so on and so forth. And the effort that it takes to originate mortgage, considering the whole value chain, is quite substantial. And there's also a cost associated with that. So if we look at uh, Indonesia on the other side, on, on the demand and on the market, 90% of the houses are probably within the bracket of 70,000 US and below. And what happens is that if you do originate mortgages in a more, let's say, traditional way, you would always prioritize houses that are more expensive 
because to make your economics work, as simple as that, right? And you would deprioritize the houses that are cheaper, where you will get less interest rates and will be more difficult to pay your costs. So he's been observing. And so there was a whole, I would say, opportunity that was not unlocked, mainly because of lack of, let's say, efficiency and high costs in originating mortgages. So our fundamental assumption at the beginning is, can we digitize the process, decrease the cost of origination and unlock a portion of the market that traditionally would be just ignored? Not because the banks don't want to take it, it's just they would have too many applications and they would, I would say, prioritize the ones that are better for them financially. So that was what we came across as an assumption that's what kicked off. So how does Rinkas go about solving this from your perspective? So we've, and, and again, this is also interesting for maybe other founders or whoever is listening to the podcast. Uh, so what we did is we actually talked with co-founders of large companies and call it unicorns or whatever you want to call them from the US and Australia and other more developed mm-hmm. markets. And we tried to find out whether through technology, it wasn't theoretically possible right. to decrease origination costs. By talking to some of them, we realized that was possible, at least abroad. So we, so what we started looking at is if there was for us to develop a system to digitize that manual process of originating mortgages, decrease the cost per unit, unlock a portion on the market and bring already, say, an originated loan or mortgage to the bank directly for them to underwrite. So that's what we've tried to build from the beginning. And obviously now we are already uh, a year live and uh, we have very high volumes comparably to where we are. So I'm quite happy with the results so far, but that's how we go about it. And really looking at the level of building that, uh, digitizing that process, which is very manual. So I think there's obviously quite a few benchmarks of companies that have tried to simplify this origination process. Companies, have you looked at as role models or peers that you look up to in different countries around the world? Yeah, so we looked at different angles. Our our goal was we want banks to accept more volume. That's basically if we boil it down, right? So we looked at a a well-known company called Better.com, which is a slightly different model because they also play in the secondary market. So they originate and then sell it off from their books within 30 to 60 days in the secondary market, which is big in the US and very small in Indonesia yet. We looked at DV Homes, which is slightly different angle and twist to this whole story, which is the rent to own model. We looked at uh, a few players in Australia. We looked at mortgage in the US. So those were mainly the kind of the models we've referred to. To be honest, none of them we could just take and copy paste in Indonesia. Um, because they would require some customization to the local market. And and that's what we did. But definitely from a tech perspective, we looked at many of them. What are the unique aspects about Indonesia as a market that you had to localize to? So Indonesia is very unique in the sense that, first of all, the primary market is very big, right? So when I say primary market, we're talking about new houses. So in Indonesia, actually, you would see cities being built by property developers, right? So when I, when I, some of my friends from Europe, they, they don't understand what it means building a city, right? Because Europe, you can build a few houses here and there, but you don't build full cities, right? But that's what's happening in Indonesia, right? That at the outskirts of the larger, cities like Jakarta, you have the cities being born. Like Bezde is one of the examples. And so the consequence, the primary market is roughly about 40% of the total market. It would be very different in, in other more developed markets where the primary market can be 10, 15%. So this means that the large property developers who build new houses have 
really large volumes. And that's one of the key first differences. The second difference, if we look more on the financial angle, the behavior in Indonesia is that the customers don't go to the bank first and understand their finances before buying a house. But on the opposite, they go find a house and then they try to figure out their finances, right? So this was also very counterintuitive at the beginning, right? Because in my experience, I would always go to my bank and ask them to basically let me know how much I can afford and how much credit they would give me. And then I would look based on that budget, my house. And Indonesia is the other way around, right? So those are the, some of the key differences that we observed when we started this business. Uh, so where's the business now today? How do you measure your milestones or traction or progress so far? As I, as I said before, one of our main ideas was to leverage that big primary market and leverage the large property development really chain to really digitize that what we call infrastructure, financial infrastructure that connects the property developer, the, the home buyer and, and the banks. So I think what, and that for us was one of the we call growth hacking. You partner with a few large property developers, they give you immediately large volume, and then you can go to the banks and, and, and sign up the banks to work with you. Because obviously in building a platform is always the chicken and the egg pro, uh, problem. What do you do first? Do you get the, the volume or you get your financial partners? So we went with the approach of signing up large property developers and that unlocked us majority of the bank partnership. Actually, now we are we have 95% coverage of mortgage uh, financial institutions. So we've partnered with majority of the banks. But that was a, obviously a process over time. So I think that's how we went about solving the chicken and egg. But there was a lot of other nuances since we are, so we had to go and get our rents. We had to go and get our certification. We had to go IT security sorted. So it was a, a long preparation I would say, a journey for us to get where we are now. We are now trying to really spread our, our solution, our platform across both many large property developers, but also banks and local branches. Yeah. So what's interesting is that you have to tackle this growth and obviously tackle different geographies, different islands. I'm just curious, is there any differences between different islands or different municipalities around this regulation? I would say regulation, not necessarily. Mm. The differences are mainly about around different customer behavior and this mm. is also very interesting and bizarre so you would go to certain areas and you would see that majority of the purchases are done through cash mm. <laughs> you would see certain areas you majority of the purchases are done through mortgages and you would see as you go in other areas you would see majority of the buyers are business owners less i would say on the regulatory because regulation is quite uniform but the behavior definitely varies place by place Mm, interesting. No, no, that's really fascinating. And as you build this out, I think property tech and finance tech has been going through this huge, like I said, it was a bull market in 2021 for both of these categories. And now 2023, obviously, that return of gravity, I guess. So looking ahead, how do you think about the funding environment? What are the key concerns that you think people often have around a startup in this space? Funding environment, obviously, as I said, that we started in 2021, thinking about it when it was bull market and things were very different. I think now Indonesia is fairly quiet. There's not that many startups. Startups and I'm really I think we're really lucky to be one of one of the few that are in a good financial position. Mm -hmm. We did raise recently around and we raised one last year, so runway is long and we can really focus on building the business. And our business is a long term. It's a big problem for the country. It's a long term business property. So I think uh, we're not too worried about the the fluctuations uh, for two reasons. One is if it's a, a market impacted from investment perspective, I think we believe that it is a matter of time. If you have a long term, if you have a good financial position, we'll come back. 
uh, whether it's going to take 18 months, 24 months, it doesn't really matter. It's a good moment to build. You don't have distraction. You don't have people raising crazy rounds or people going and really undermining you in terms of pricing strategies and all that. So I think from that perspective, we are very happy. On the other side, what is also important to consider is that since we are in Indonesia where the demand is really strong, we haven't seen the global interest rate affecting the market that much. Mm, This is also very interesting. So you would look at mortgage rates in the UK, for example. So I had just a friend who came from the UK and he says, look, rent went up 40% because nobody's buying mortgage rates are super high. In Indonesia, it's not necessarily the case because the majority of the home buyers are first home buyers. So Mm. the demand is still very strong and the interest rates haven't been impacted that much. And that allows us to be fairly in a comfortable place, even considering this you know, global turbulence in terms of interest rates, cost of funds, and that impacts mortgages a lot, like in places like US or UK. So those two things makes us the capability of building quietly without the distractions and still fairly strong market, local market. I think that allows us hopefully to survive the tech winter in a good way. Actually, this is a super interesting point about interest rates, right? So the tech boom and bubble was obviously fueled by zero interest rate policy by the US, so that was really low. And it was interesting because people considered the risk-free rate and the emerging markets are priced on top of it. And I'm so curious because I've been traveling around the region and this obviously surge of inflation and then after that surge of interest rates is very much a Western dynamic in Europe and US. And I think in Southeast Asia, there are differing aspects about it. So Singapore inflation was moderate. I think Indonesia inflation was lower. And then Vietnam interest rates went really high because they had a financial crisis in terms of the banking system. So could you share a little bit more about that interaction between interest rates inflation grow from your perspective because it's so linked to property, right? In um, in Indonesia, actually, it's a pity, but maybe I will show you later, I'll send you a slide. Historically, there's no correlation between property demand and interest rates in Indonesia. That's very funny <laughs> because usually you would see definitely a correlation, yeah. right? And something else to mention is that interest rates like three, four years ago in Indonesia were much higher than they are today. Mm. So that's something else that the customers see. So interest rates in Indonesia were even the fixed interest rates were double digits a few years back and they have gone significantly down mm-hmm. uh, nowadays. So fixed interest for two or three years, you can get down to, to 3%, right. 3-4%, right? Obviously for a limited amount of time, right. then it goes back to the floating rate right. of about 12%. So, you know, people who obviously grew up in Indonesia lived here for a long time, for them, like they compared it to what it was five years ago, they said, well, this is, this is great, right? So I think that's something, that's another psychological factor that doesn't slow the demand. And that's how, what we observe as well in Indonesia. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about obviously property prices, you know, and you talk about primary, obviously, and then we talk about resale. When you look down the next five, 10 years, I mean, everybody's going to ask you, right? Should I buy property in Indonesia? How should I think about it? I'm sure people ask you all that all the time. But I mean, less about buying a house, but you know, what do you think are going to be the trends you think is going to happen over the next 10 year perspective since you're so into it right now? Yeah, yeah this is a very good question. <laughs> Uh, I love the question. To be honest, this is what we're all that I actually thinking a lot internally as well, uh, personally, on a personal basis, right. because we do see a lot of great opportunities, right. not necessarily in Jakarta, but in other cities. Right. Let's talk about the new capital. Right. So there's a new capital that is supposed to be built in Kalimantan mm-hmm. in, in Indonesia, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, a lot of property developers are going there. People are buying land. And this could be one of the trends one might want to jump on board. Obviously, there are restrictions for foreigners in terms of buying property. 
property, but even those are being lifted for uh, properties above a certain amount. Yeah. So if the property is about a certain price, then you can actually own a property in Indonesia. There's some of the latest regulations that came out. So I think obviously, you know, Indonesia is an emerging market. Things are growing very fast. I've been here for 11 years. And when I came to Jakarta, it had a lot less fancy apartments right. than it has now. And I personally bought several properties here. And mm. So I believe I've seen that in, in, when, when I grew up in Moscow in mm. 2000, you know, you could buy very cheaply and then it became just prohibitively expensive. So I think in long run, the properties, especially in the bigger cities, are going to go up in price. It's good to buy. Obviously, be careful on the bubbles. Mm. There might be some temporary bubbles and will be ups and downs. Like mm. one of the bubbles that we observe now is in Bali and not sure how long it's going to last personal view yeah I think what's also interesting I mean you mentioned obviously you grew up in Russia I think one thing I've met recently over the past year is I've met so many immigrants uh, from across Southeast Asia in Thailand Indonesia um, I'm just wondering do you, do you have any advice for folks uh, who are new to Southeast Asia how they should be thinking about it how they should be localizing how they should be exploring opportunities okay. yes uh, you know I do see a lot of Russian founders personally uh, I left Russia when I was still a kid yeah. and uh, I spent 15 years in Italy and basically grew up mainly there. But uh, I think the idea is that, but this is, I would say, it's just not about Russians in general, about yeah. foreigners coming to or any other country in Southeast right. Asia. I think what the recommendation would be there is to really spend more time to understand the local culture, spend more time to build a relationship, not rush in, in doing things and expecting to have quick results because these countries are still very relationship driven. People need to understand who you are, need to trust you. And that is not something they can build immediately. I think this is some of the mistakes that people do, right? They would come and say, okay, I'm smart. I can do something quick and I flip things here. No, I don't think that's how it works. So I think it's a more of a long-term uh, relationship building, really caring about the place where you are, really trying to understand what are the challenges, how you can create impact, how you can help not only yourself, but the country. So I think the, the mindset is very important. I encourage anybody. And you look, honestly, I've been a foreigner all my life. Interesting, yeah. years in Italy, seven years in Russia, and been around, lived in South Africa, lived in Singapore, now in Indonesia. So I think that this mindset of basically caring where you are, even though you're not coming from that place and really identifying itself for the current problems and so on, I think is very important. And not many people have that, especially if they are not used to being a foreigner all their life. So that's one of the things that at least is my personal takeaway. Yeah, very true. I guess you know, they call it a third culture kid, right? But I guess you're like a fourth culture or fifth culture kid by now. <laughs> well, I, yeah, look, I mean, I lived 15 years in Italy, seven years in Russia, and then in Indonesia already 11 years. Yeah. And my wife is Indonesian, so, <laughs> so this is my yeah. Yeah, third or fourth place. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, th I think obviously, you know, Southeast Asia is full of immigration from the Indians uh, to the Asians to, you know, I think lots of different folks and cultures in Southeast Asia have that naval silk road between the East and the West. So definitely not an issue. And of course, there's an incredible influx of talent, both technical, but in terms of like hunger and entrepreneurship. So I think one interesting thing you say is like having to make sure that you guys kind of understand the local culture and build local links. How do you think folks who are like moving to Southeast Asia, how should they go about doing it from your perspective? Well, I think to be honest with you is I've seen many people who lived abroad, mm. but never went out from their comfort zone, right. especially in their maybe free time. So I, I know many people who, you know, you know Italians, for example, mm. and they live in wherever and they just hang out with Italians, mm. right? So that's obviously will not bring you close necessarily. 
even though I understand that you feel more in your comfort zone surrounded right. by people that, you know, understand your language and so forth. So I think the idea is that for me, I lived in so many different places. So nationality is never something I do care about in the sense that whether I'm hanging out with Indonesian or foreigners or etc., I really value people and that can bring me something and I can bring to them. But it's really pushing yourself a little bit outside the course. Right. If you, and again, Jakarta is not Indonesia. It's very important to go to other cities and see how people live. And, you know, yesterday I was in Palembang and, you know, different city, different vibe, different traditions. And Indonesia is a large country, obviously, because sometimes come like it's Bali and Jakarta or maybe some, for example, just Bali. And then they think that represents the country, but that's not really true. And for me, it was one of those moments where I actually learned about the diversities when I was working in Excel Axiata, which mm. is a large telecom operator in between my startup jobs. And, and that's where I had a chance to really understand how large the country is, how different the behavior might be. And at that time, we had about 70 million customers. So I think those are a few things that people need to force themselves to do in order to get closer to the reality of things. Otherwise, right. your assumptions about the market might be very skewed, right? Yeah, 100%. On that note, Singapore is also not Southeast Asia. So that would be my advice as well. <laughs> very true, right? There are people, well, 100%, there are people who come to Singapore and say, okay, this is Southeast Asia. I'm going to be based here. I'm nice and comfortable. And then they try to launch a startup out of Singapore for mm-hmm. Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And that mostly doesn't work, right? Yeah. But that's not a not a surprise, right? Because yeah. very different realities. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, you know, I think it's about understanding what the local reality is, which is very different. I think very different GGP per capita, like you said, different interest rates, even different regulatory dynamics on the property side and finance side, different stages in terms of ecosystem. So just things are so different, right? You know, I think what's interesting as well is that, you know, you sit down and you said, okay, I want to build this. And I think you've been a founder over and over again, right? So I'm sure you have a lot of good stories. Any personal story about a time that you've been brave? Uh, I think I mentioned some stories in the previous podcast we had, but I think to be honest with you... Actually, starting this business was uh, was something that I think you have to be a bit brave to do that for several reasons. I was coming from, I would say, two challenging years of COVID where I had to really go through a lot of struggles of a company Mm -hmm. being in the entertainment and hospitality sector. I had my first child coming and obviously big change personally and starting a business in a financial services and real estate, which is for a foreigner, it could be also considered a big risk. I mean, mm. I, I put quote unquote foreigner since I've been in Indonesia for 11 years. And I said, I, I do think I understand the culture and, and the society pretty well. But I think still, when you first pitch to the VCs, they, they ask you questions if they don't know the, the background. But it's something that I really felt that I was in a good place to do and it required a little bit more gray hair or no hair <laughs> since it's a difficult uh, you know uh, difficult problem to solve so i do think that's in that moment in time, it was uh, something that a brave move for me to start. And uh, I don't regret obviously doing that, but we'll see <laughs> how, how everything unfolds. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. On that note, I'd love to summarize the three big uh, takeaways I got from this conversation. But the first, of course, thank you so much for sharing about what it was like to obviously uh, wrap up your time at your last company and startup, but also how you went about searching and matching a co-founder that you respected, but also searching and testing and experimenting with different verticals and eventually adding the problem that you went to tackle. 
So I thought it was a really nice experience. It's I think increasingly common, but still relatively rare for a founder to be a serial founder again. And this time around, I think be much more intentional about that search process and about intentional about the recovery process as well. I thought it was one. Two, thank you so much for sharing Rinkas about why you're tackling the space. And I think some of the peculiarities about the interest rate, property prices, the primary versus the resale market, rental yields, and obviously whether we should buy property in Indonesia or not, can it only go up? <laughs> but I thought it was really interesting to hear about how you're approaching it, but also how you're planning to make it much easier for folks to be able to solve the whole mortgage loan process, which is really fascinating for those who are interested in property tech and fintech. Um, lastly, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about what advice you have for folks who are moving to Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia is such a melting pot of different cultures in every single country, in every single border, in every single city, in every single community. And I thought it was nice of you to share a little bit about how you've been in Indonesia for 11 years. You have you know, a family here and congratulations on your kid uh, who's going to be growing up here for the foreseeable future. But I think it was just really nice to hear about how there's a local reality that's not easy to observe if you're in a bubble but also okay, what advice you have to how to get out the bubble and to really engage so thank you so much Ilya for coming on the show thank you Jeremy it was a pleasure to share thanks for inviting thank you for listening to Brave if you enjoyed this episode please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues we would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.